Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. My name is Justin Barton, and I am the host of this show, and I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. Now, as you listen to this episode today, or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that thought can and will bring great blessings of joy to you and that person that comes to mind. I am very excited to continue this, this very special to me, 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery. Now, I've interviewed many different people from lots of different locations and many different backgrounds on each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say this does not apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives. Some of those may be something that no one in the world knows about but ourselves, but we really wish we could move past them. But try as we will, we have not been able to leave them behind. I have experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their own lives and they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. This can include full-blown drug and alcohol or sex addiction or something as dire as cutting or eating disorders or something as seemingly dumb as maybe video games or popping your knuckles. Now today we um, we'll be hearing the experience, strength, and hope of Cameron in relation to the fourth step of recovery. Cameron and I were connected through the person that was our step two guest, Harvey. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I highly recommend it. Actually, I highly recommend you listen to all five of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series. There are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. So whether you do that now or after you listen to this episode, I would highly recommend checking out the others and then continuing with steps 5 through 12 over the next several weeks. Step 4 reads, Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. This is the step that so many people get hung up on and lose steam. But in this conversation with Cameron, we learn that this does not need to be the case. Now, in this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before, before considered or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this episode... Review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back, hit the road, work out, do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Cameron. So, I'm sitting here through the magics of technology with Cameron. Now, Cameron, you're in Toronto, is that correct? That's correct. Toronto, Ontario. Very cool. And I'm clear over in Spokane, Washington. So this is a beautiful thing to be able to do this through um, technology like this. 
why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as if you were sitting in a in a room somewhere? All right. Well, my name is uh, Cameron, and I am a member of uh, Cocaine Anonymous primarily, although I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I like to differentiate when I introduce myself the difference between being a member of a 12-step fellowship versus being an alcoholic or an addict. Because my experience as, a, as an untreated alcoholic or addict is that I love the effect of alcohol and drugs so much on my, my system that I'm willing to, to risk everything. I'm willing to risk every job I've been fired from. I'm willing to risk the safety of my children. I used to share needles back in the day and I'd leave my dirty fits laying around the house and I'd find my four-year-old playing squirt guns with them. Mm. But I like the effect that drugs and alcohol have on my body far more than that. Um, I'm willing to risk my marriage. My wife would beg, plead, offer those frothy emotional appeals, threaten divorce. But I like the effect more than my own marriage. In fact, I like the effect so much I'm willing to risk my own life for mm. that amazing reaction that I get. And I remember my doctor in 2000 saying, Cameron, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're your blood work came back, your enzymes are through the roof, your liver's distended, you, you've got all the signs of liver disease. I said, I drink a lot. He said, well, if you don't stop drinking, um, you're going to die. And I, as soon as I heard that news, the first thought that hit my mind was, I need a drink right now. Hmm. And I drank for three more years on that news. So my experience as an untreated alcoholic addict is, even when I truly want to stop, I can't stop. My mind continuously lies to me like the dog that returns to its vomit. You know, you see a dog eat something, it throws it up. What does the dog do? It, it, it eats the vomit only to throw it up again. That's what I'm like as an untreated uh, alcoholic addict. I'm like that dog that keeps returning to the vomit and consuming the very thing that's killing me. And my mind tells me this time when I do it, it's going to be okay. And that's the horror behind step one is the realization I want to stop and there's nothing secular or human in this world that can cause me to do that and I'm going to die. That's an awful conclusion. Yeah. Yet, yet as a member, a member of Cocaine Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, it's been 16 years since I've had any desire to drink or use. Now that's a, that's a paradox for an alcoholic addict to say, I'm an alcoholic addict who doesn't drink or use. That's a paradoxical statement because everything in my experience tells me I will drink and use again, yet I don't. How is that possible? And it's because I met someone who was armed with the facts about themselves, a generosity of spirit, and showed me how to climb out of that inescapable pit and recover in life. And as a result, I was able to rebuild a destroyed marriage, the love and respect of my two children, my liver went back to normal after six years. Um, I went back to university and graduated summa cum laude at the 18th ranked Ivy League university in the world of medical anthropologies and religion at Toronto University. And I travel all over the world speaking in CA and AA about, uh, about recovery and step work. It's, it's, it's a miracle. Wow, that's a, a really good background there. And I love that. Uh, putting the difference, I guess, between being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous and being uh, an addict, an active in, in active addiction. So, Cameron, tell me a little bit about your first introduction, your first foray into your addictive behaviors, and and kind of how that 
developed to where you eventually figured out, hey, this is out of control. I'm I'm in trouble. Well, I um, I was, I guess, a late bloomer. I did not have my first mind-altering substance until I went away to college. I was, uh, I was a very awkward, uh, socially inept uh, young man at the age of uh, 20, and I went to college in a strange town, uh, didn't know anybody, and was very, you know, out of sorts with everything and everyone. And I remember a few weeks into the school semester, a couple of the chums in class said, hey, Cameron, why don't you join us for pub night? And I said, oh, great. So I had a rum and Coke. That was my very first drink at the age of 20. Hmm. And that rum and Coke, when I drank it, it had such an effect on me that I went, wow, I really like this. And I had like, I think, 20 more drinks that night. And of course, you know, <laughs> the projectile vomiting, the bed spins and swearing, oh my God, never again, never again. Mm-hmm. But where was I two, three days later? Back at pub night, slinging back the rum and Cokes. Mm. Now, this is in 1977. You know, I, I, I graduated from college. Uh, by the time I graduated, I'd been drinking. Now I'm into, I'm smoking uh, hash and, you know, oils and that sort of thing. I started experimenting with LSD. I came, I moved into Toronto and by 1982, I hit my first bottom. I'm a hundred, I'm six feet tall, 178 pounds. I was down to 130 pounds. I'd been living basically on marijuana, PCP, LSD, and, and, and booze. And I was, I was messed up. I was evicted. I wasn't paying rent, obviously. Who's got money for rent when drugs are at stake? Right. Were you married at that time? I was. Yes, I was. I, that was with my first wife. And we separated. And, and I, I was destitute. She had moved to another place. And uh, so I came... I came back to be with my parents and I remember my doctor saying, Oh, Cameron, you know, saying to my mom with a sense of disgust, this man is dying. Mm. You know, again, ominous warnings, even from the doctor didn't sober me up. I sobered up for a week. I got my act together somewhat, moved back to Toronto, got together with my wife. This is 1983, got a job. I'm just smoking dope and drinking the occasional beer and things started to escalate in 84, my, my son was born. And uh, by 1985, I'm back. Now I'm, now I'm doing cocaine, you know, and I'm, I'm into a lot of other things. By 1987, I hit a new bottom. Mm. My, I couldn't wear short sleeves in the summer, track marks, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I couldn't stop returning to the cocaine. My wife was threatening to leave me. My son was just a little guy at the time. And things escalated. My job, my career, everything blew up my face. So I started doing spiritual retreats to try mm. and get some sobriety. And I'd get a reprieve for a month, maybe a couple of weeks. But then the feeling would wear off. And, and that restless, irritable, discontented, bored, depressed, anxious state of mind would come back. And I hate that. My liar says we need a solution. And that's the drink. Smash cocaine and smoke really good dope. Mm. Um, so... I hit that bottom, sobered up for about a month, and then I went back at it. My first wife was killed in 89 in a car accident. Mm. Um, by that point, I had resolved only to drink. And I was an alcoholic then, and I, I was drinking. I met my current wife for 30 years, about a year later. She never knew to any extent what I was before. She knew I was an addict, but mm. in her mind, all I did was have the occasional drink. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I started, you know, it, it, it's odd. In, 19, in 1993, my wife found out about 
me smoking marijuana and she didn't like that at all. So I said, I'll sober up. And for a year, 1993 to 94, I was completely sober on willpower. Mm. But I was a terrible flirt. And I was remember flirting with this girl. And she says, I have a, a really great, you know, uh, joint on me. Would you like to smoke it? And just like that, after your surprise, it lighted up. Mm. And so I started drinking and using and everything else that went with it. I hit another bottom in 1999. I used to go on these five-year binges. And my wife was diagnosed with uh, cervic cancer, and I sobered up for nine months. Now, I'm not working any kind of program here, right? I'm just dry sober. And uh, in 1999, I sobered up for her sake, helped her out. And then about nine months into it, I did a job for a client. And the client says, oh, Cameron, you, you know, you did such a great job. Let me take you and buy you a drink. I said, oh, I don't know. Alcohol doesn't agree with me. He mm-hmm. says, come on, just one drink. I'm not working a program. So my liar says, yeah, what's one drink? Mm-hmm. So I have a bourbon. Long after he's gone home, I'm still at the bar drinking. And I'm calling the dealer and I'm ramped up again. Then by 2003, I hit my last bottom. My wife didn't want anything to do with me. My kids didn't want anything to do with me. My clients were getting rid of me. I had liver disease, and I was miserable inside and out. I remember the day I was drinking cold beers, smoking really good dope, and I'm miserable on the inside and outside. I'm fishing for brown trout, caught two 18-inchers that day, and I'm miserable, and I don't want to go on like this. So I came into the rooms, and I started... I dried out for a while in the rooms, no solution, just going to meetings. And I was dying in that respect, dry, crazy, ready to go out again. And that's when I was approached by someone who was armed with the facts and said, let me show you how to work a program, Cameron, because you're dying the way you're doing it. And I've never been the same since. So, so before that time when you're out fishing and, and drinking and smoking and you're just miserable, had you ever gone into a 12-step program, ever tried I, I one did, out? I did a brief stint in NA in 1988. Mm. I, I, went, I remember going to, I went for a year, just going to, I went to a meeting every week. I picked up my sobriety chips, but I was drinking. Mm. I didn't think, you know, this is NA. It was this NA, is right. Yeah. And, and no one ever really approached me in NA and told me how to work a program or, or anything like that. So after about a year, I thought, you know, I don't know what this is all about, but I got better ideas. That mm. was my only, you know, thing of 12-step at that point. And I didn't go into another 12-step program until 2003. Yeah. I love how you said, my liar says to me, <laughs> "Yeah, it's okay to do this. Talk about your liar. Tell me about that concept. Well, you know, the, the threefold illness of our, our, our predicament is that, you know, I have, a, I have an overly sensitive body. So when I ingest anything mind-altering, I love the effect. I'm willing to risk everything. But even when I admit that, you know, it's injurious to my life and I shouldn't be going on like that and people are getting hurt, I got this liar that lives in my head and the liar loves the effect of alcohol and drugs. It doesn't want to give it up. So I realize I can't live with the booze and drugs anymore, but I don't know how to live without it. So what happens is I start to dry out. And as I dry out, I get restless, irritable, discontented, bored, depressed, anxious. These are symptoms of my malady. 
And then my liar starts to go to task. And it's built this research and development annex in my brain where it's got thousands of technicians researching new ideas, new excuses, new justifications as to why, even though my life's in the toilet, this time when I do it, it's going to be okay. And the liar always wins the argument. Mm. Always. So, so with the liar there in your brain and – and we'll jump into this a little bit before we go over to talk about step four, because I think this is important to talk about here with the liar in your brain that always wins. Okay. So where's the hope? If the liar always wins, what, how, how are you sober? That's, that's the hopelessness of it is all the failed ways in which I tried to sober up. You know, that, that really crystallized the powerlessness for me. I went through, you know, meetings, sponsors, Self-help, reading the book, having money, no money, uh, substitution strategies, harm reduction, firm resolutions, oaths, you know, getting pets, uh, you know, mm. reading poetry, uh, you know, all these different ways to try and sober up spiritual retreats, treatment, counseling, therapy. None of it kept me pitiful and incomprehensible demoralizing experiences, good reasons to stop, and nothing kept me sober. And that was the powerlessness of it. Now, in the beginning, I realized I was an addict. People say, are you an addict? I said, you're damn right I'm an addict. Now let's go get high. That's not what drove me into the room seeking a solution. Hmm. It was the second part of step one, the unmanageability internally and externally. And I remember my uh, sponsor saying to me in the most sensitive way, he says, Cameron, are you a loser? What? Are you a loser? I said, that's a really awful thing to say to me. I got low self-esteem. My counselor (laughs) doesn't talk to me that way. And he goes, I'm not trying to be mean, Cameron. I'm trying to wake you up to what it means to be an addict. Because if you really are powerless and you can't stop drinking or using, my experience is we go on a losing streak. So let's talk about what you've lost. And I go, I've lost time, money, friends, self-esteem, hope, serenity, hygiene, safety, my kids, my family. Uh, my careers, opportunities, and down the list I go. Uh, and he, so he, he asked me again after a discussion of everything I lost, he goes, are you a loser? I said, well, when you put it that way, yeah, I'm a loser. And I can see the gates of insanity or death on the horizon. Mm. That's what motivated me to look for a solution because I knew I was going to. Mm. So what is that solution? Well, that solution, as it was explained to me, was he says, Cameron, we have a way by which you can recover. And it's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we liken it to what we call a recipe. You know, uh, he says, unlike other recovery texts and addiction books out there, this book was written like an instruction manual, like a recipe, like a cake recipe. You know, when when you buy one of those Duncan Hines or Betty Crocker chocolate cake boxes, you look, you got, the, you got the, the recipe on the side of the box. And if you follow the recipe, my favorite are double layer extra moist chocolate cake. Mm. <laughs> you follow the recipe exactly, you get this really great tasting chocolate cake. But if you leave baking powder out of it, what happens? Well, the cake won't rise. You leave sugar out of it, it won't be sweet. If you forget to put the chocolate icing on the cake, it doesn't even look like what you're supposed to get. Mm. But just as conversely, you can't put too much into the recipe calls for two eggs, not five, calls for a cup of milk, not 10. And a lot of people put way too much in certain parts of the recipe, like step four, people Mm. turn that into an archaeological dig. And Mm. that's not really what a step four is all about. Mm. So he showed me an exact measure, 
likening this analogy of a cake recipe that the 12 steps is a recipe for recovery. And if you follow them exactly as they're laid out in exact measure as the, the big book suggests, you will have a spiritual experience of such a profound nature that it will separate you from that merciless desire to drink or use. Mm. That was my way out. That, that was the solution there and, and your experience with that. Very cool. So, so Cameron, the reason or the, you know, when, we, when you and I were connected, you said that uh, you'd love to talk about step four and focus on that. Yes. So, or what step four is and out of the book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, before we talk about the nuts and bolts of working a step four, and you've alluded to it, that it's that in your experience, it's, it doesn't need to be an archaeological dig like so many people, myself yes. included, I think, have made it. But tell me a little bit what it means to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of, of ourselves. Well, let, uh, let me just bring this up to speed for the step four. So I realize I come into the program. I am powerless. My life is unmanageable. I got no power, lack of power. That's my dilemma. And in step two, I come to believe because I realize there's people like you and I, we've, lo- we've tried all the same strategies and failed. We've lost all the same things, yet some of us don't do it anymore. How is that possible? So I let their testimony bear witness to this power, the ability to be honest with myself, and to search diligently within myself, I too can have this power. So that brings me to step three, where I make a decision. I make a decision to go look for this power. I want this power. Where do I get a piece of the action? So I make a decision to turn my will over to the care of God and my life or the care of God as I understand it. And as much as I really want that, I do that step three prayer, which is like our daily baptism into the program, where just for today, I'm going to live according to God's will. And I go into my meditation, I got this thunderous roar in my head of all these resentments and fears and harms and guilt and shame and yapping away. And I I know the divine's in there somewhere, that spark of the great reality deep down within, but I can't access it because I'm blocked. Hmm. So that brings us to step four and five, which is a process of getting right with ourselves. Six and seven is a process of getting right with God. And eight and nine is a process about getting right with others. Mm. So in step four, I realize I'm blocked. I can't connect to the divine because I got all this stuff going on in my head. So I got to do an inventory, but it's a specific kind of inventory. It is a moral inventory. It's not an archaeological dig. It's not a psychological therapy session. It is a moral inventory of my character, uh, Uh, defects of character, my shortcomings, the flaws in my makeup, the root of my troubles. That's what I'm trying to uncover from a moral standpoint. Because our, our, our solution is a spiritual moral approach. Not a psychological approach, not a cognitive behavioral change approach. Mm. It is a spiritual moral approach. So it's a moral inventory. And we tease out that moral inventory by looking at our resentments, looking at our fears, and looking at the harms we've done to others. So, so you, you said something there that I think many people who, who will be listening to this who are either, you know, maybe they don't struggle with any sort of addiction that they see in their lives that causes any issues. Maybe they're in denial and, and realize there's something, but they don't want to say anything about it. Or maybe they are addicts and yet are still trying to find that magic pill that you're talking about. And you said this is not a cognitive program. This is a spiritual and moral solution. Uh, To most of the world, unless it makes cognitive sense, 
I'm not going to look at it. So tell me how you, how, how do you deal with that in your own life? And ha- I mean, tell me okay. a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I've worked with Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, atheists, agnostics, and, and I've never really had any problems starting the journey on step two, uh, where they make a, a, a decision based on the testimony of others and the ability to think honestly and search diligently within themselves can at least start with a willingness to believe. Because the mm-hmm. process, step two is a process where we come to believe. Now, that's predicated on lack of power. So most of the addicts I work with, they've burned everything to the ground. They've got no, all they can see are the gates of insanity or death. And, you know, if, if they're still arguing with me about, you know, other ways, I, I just go try them. Knock mm. yourself out. You know, I hope it works for you. I really do. Mm. And, and if it doesn't, you know, give me a call. I'll be here and I'm willing to help. So. You know, when I work with atheists and agnostics, I talk. I don't talk about God. I use God a lot as a convenient noun, mm-hmm. um, but it's a mystical program. There's a mystical experience that goes through it because if there wasn't, there wasn't a mystical thread, then rational recovery would have worked. And I tried rational recovery, and it doesn't work mm-hmm. for me, anyhow. So I embrace this mystical thread. And, and don't get me wrong here. On a scale of one to 10, one being I'm prostrated on a, a prayer rug before a theistic God and 10 being an outright atheist, I'm like a 9.5. Hmm. It's that 0.5 of mystical, em, em, that embracement of the mystical that has always saved my butt in hmm. recovery. I don't know what it is, but I tap into it. And I call it, for lack of a better word, God dope. This is good dope. Hmm. This spiritual energy that I tap into, I can wield and, and, and really do some miraculous things with it. And we know hmm. what's happening because we see great people throughout the centuries who have demonstrated a connection to a power greater than themselves. You know, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you got, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got Rabbi Akiva, you've got Jesus Christ, Joan of Arc, Pope Paul, um, Mother Teresa, and the list goes on and on, mm-hmm. who claimed a power greater than themselves, restore, could, they could do things with that miraculous thing. Chinese tradition, Lao Tzu, Confucius, you got mm-hmm. Gandhi in the Hindu tradition, the Dalai Lama and the Buddhist. The Buddhist hit nirvana in his own lifetime through mm-hmm. the Eightfold Path. So we know there's a phenomenon at play. So when I explain it like that, they usually get it. Uh, with atheists, I talk about higher consciousness, raised consciousness, because most addicts, Untreated alcoholics and addicts are barely toilet-trained apes. They mm. eat, they defecate, they fornicate, and that's about all they're good for. They're mm. like cockroaches scurrying around. <laughs> they hate it when I talk to them like that. Right, right. That's what they're like, right? So we're going to try and transcend that, engage our prefrontal lobes, and try to have a divine experience here. No. Yeah, you I, ever I, had an intuitive thought and you listen to yourself, and, you re- and then in hindsight you said, thank, thank God I listened to myself? Yeah. Now, Intuition's a different way of accessing knowledge. It, it's not discerned through our inductive or deductive reasoning, rationalizing brains. It's a, it's a different access. And there's been times when I've had an intuitive thought and didn't listen to myself, and then in hindsight, why didn't I listen to myself? <laughs> I believe that intuitive voice is, is the divine voice. That's mm. God. That's where the God switch is. And if I can listen to that voice and hear it and obey it, it always leads me in the right direction. And that's why prayer and meditation is such a cornerstone tool of our program. 
Yeah. And even if you are, as you mentioned, a 9.5 on the atheistic scale where, you know, there's maybe a God out there or whatever, um, that God dope, as you called it, I love that, by the way, is real. And you still find yourself praying and meditating and and contemplating on that, right? I do. And I, you know, in my prayer meditation, I once said, you know, I said, God, now that I'm your intelligent agent, your spearhead of your ever advancing creation, isn't about time you revealed your whole plan to me. And God said to me, he said, spearhead, that's his affectionate nickname for me. (laughs) He said, spearhead, you're on a need to know basis. More will be revealed. Now I need more faith and more work. Oh, I like that. And I like the nickname that God gives you, spearhead. Is there more? Is there more uh, behind that nickname than what you just shared there? I mean, what what's your what's your thought on that? Sometimes when I'm in a meeting, especially if it's a little stodgy and a little bit too rigid, you know, we'll go around. Hi, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I'm out. Mm-hmm. It comes to me. I go, "Good evening, everybody. My name's Cameron F. Intelligent agent, spearhead of God's ever advancing creation. It's great to be here." And of <laughs> course, that's that's on page forty nine of your big book, right? I love that. Intelligent agent spirit. I thought, wow, that's what I want to be. I want to be a spirit of God's ever advancing creation. Uh, uh, what a better way to declare your membership, right? Oh, I love that. I I'm gonna I'm gonna look at incorporating that somehow into my own uh, <laughs> introduction. Actually, I think there's a group in Atlanta, Georgia called the Spearheads. After mm, that passage, too. So nice. Anyhow. Nice. All right, so tell me a little bit, Cameron, about the nuts and bolts. I mean, it, we know it's not, uh, from, from your experience, doing a step four is not an archaeological dig. Tell us a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the framework of it, and then let's talk a little bit more of the purpose or your experience in it and why it's an important step. Okay, well, first, the, the first key point is after you've done your step three decision, it immediately tells us in the instructions, next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, a personal house cleaning. And by vigorous action, that does not mean easy, does it? Which I hear a lot. Hmm. It means vigorous action, no half measures. So we do this personal house cleaning where it tells us that even though that decision we've made in step three is such a vital and crucial step, it will not have the effect I need until I recognize what's blocking me, and rid myself of those blocks, those, those impediments to a divine experience. So we have to get down to causes and conditions. So, and so we do this personal inventory, and we look at three big items on our list, resentments, fears, and harms. Now, when I do an initial inventory, all of it gets taken care of at some point. But when I do the initial inventory on, with someone, I go for the big stuff. The fact that you took $5 out of your mother's purse when you were 12 years old, like, that's going to get reconciled and dealt with. But that's not really what's causing you to go out and, and, and drink or get high or whatever. So I go for the big stuff, the big resentments. When I think of somebody mm. and I am murdering them in my head and heinously butchering them in some immoral way, man, that's, I'm putting that on the list because that's got a lot of fodder to it. Yeah. When, when I'm cowering in fear and, and immobilized by a fear, I'm looking at those fears. And when I think of someone I've harmed and I wince with shame and guilt and embarrassment, I'm putting that on because I'm going to get some real specific character defects that are going to show me you know, what blocks me from having hmm. power in my life. So, so let me stop, step in there real quick. You know, when I worked my step four um, the first time 
and the times that I've worked with many people through it, mostly, most of the time I'll say, hey, on this page, on the harms page or on the fears page or the negative emotions page, I need you to have X number of things on there. You don't, you don't go anywhere near there saying, hey, you have to have at least 100 Oh God, I, I've listed. done thorough inventories with people with less than five items. I, I would never, someone comes to me with an opus on their life. I go, you're just not that important. And hmm. I'm not going to listen to that. Let's get down to the big ones. Because hmm. what happens is as you, as you look at the really big items, the big fears, big resentments, big harms, you're going to tease out a certain profile of character defects that will show again and again in every inventory item, it's the same character defect. So, you know, when I looked at, when I looked at my resentments, there was a pattern that evolved. Now, when we deal with our, with our inventory, it's a very simple process. It's, I use a, a five column inventory. The first column is who am I resentful at? Is it a person? Is it an institution or is it a principal? Mm -hmm. Then I look at why am I angry? Then I look at how does that affect me? Does it affect my pocketbook, my security, my relationships, my sexuality, you know, et cetera, my self-esteem? And then I look at my part. Now, we all know, you know, you can tell somebody their inventory. I'm basically a dishonest, fearful, selfish, self-seeking person. Mm -hmm. But that isn't good enough. I know that. But I want to get down to specific causes and conditions. So as I look at my resentments, a pattern started to evolve and I, and I got very specific. Yes, I'm selfish, but what does that mean? Well, I'm, I, I have these self-seeking motives. And for me, my self-seeking motives are a need of validation by others, center of attention, recognition for who and what I am. Those are primary self-seeking motives I seek in my relationships. And when I don't get them, I, get, I can get pretty resentful. More specifically than that, Part of my, my selfishness manifests as false pride. Specific Now, false pride can go one of two ways. It can go to self-deprecation, self-loathing, self-pity, mm -hmm. or it goes to arrogance. I exaggerate who I am, and I get arrogant. And mm -hmm. out of my arrogance comes even more specific defects. I get misogynistic. I get bigoted. I get misanthropic. I love mythanthropy. <laughs> That's where I, I hope an asteroid will come by and obliterate the earth. I don't even mind dying knowing you're coming with me, Justin. That's, <laughs> that's mythanthropy, right? right? And, out, and out of those, those false pride defects comes hatred, immoral thinking, gossip and slander, impatience, suspicion, indiscretion. And, and those character defects came up time and time again in my column four as to what's my part in this resentment. How do I play a part in that resentment? And a pattern started to emerge. It was great about my, uh, my sponsor. After we, we looked at all these similar characteristics coming up again and again and again, he says, you know, Cameron, he says, you know what that list means? I said, well, what do you mean? He says, that's your resume. As an untreated addict, that's your resume. That's who you really are. Next time you go for a job interview or have a relationship with somebody, you show them that list because that's who they're getting. I thought, that's really objectionable. That's a really objectionable man that I've uncovered in column four. Mm. But what's great about knowing your character defects, it reveals where the power is. Because there's no power in hatred, but there's power in forgiveness. There's no power in false pride, but there's power in humility. There's no power in suspicion, but there's power in trust. There's no power in bigotry, misogyny, or misanthropy, but there's power in respect 
tolerance, kindness, and, and, and acceptance. So now I got a track to run on. So when I do my step three prayer in the morning, I say, God, relieve me of the bondage itself. I'm very clear what the bondage of Cameron looks like. More importantly, when I do that prayer where I say, may I do your will always, and I meditate on my day, I'm thinking about what does Cameron look like as an unselfish, helpful, kind, considerate, tolerant, discreet, trusting, accepting, so on, and responsible, you know, centered human being. What will that look like when I'm dealing with my family, when I'm with friends, when I'm in the rooms, when I'm at work, when I'm on public transit? What does that man look like? Then I execute my day. And I live on, I, 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 I live on that power because what's in, what I find interesting about that approach is what should I do instead? How can I make matters right? Which alludes to this fifth column. When I demonstrate that kind of a man in my day, I can't help but dial into the divine and have mm. spiritual experiences throughout my day. Mm. And that's power. That is. So as you focus on just, you know, the top, the, the items on, on our list with negative emotions that just, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm figuring out ways to kill this person or whatever with these resentments that I just have. There are smaller things that, but, but I think what you're saying is that in digging up these bigger things, the, the personal character defects that I have are, are made manifest there. And then I can deal with them, deal with the smaller things. Cause I still need to, you know, make amends or whatever of the, with those smaller things at some point. Right. Sure. Yeah. Whenever I get a resentment in my day and I take note of it and I tease out the inventory, it's the same inventory. It's usually arrogance. It's a record. I'm being disrespected. I'm not being validated. And then, and then I retaliate with dishonesty and arrogance and slander and gossip, and I have moral thinking in my head going on. It's, it's always the same pattern. Hmm. But I realize that if I stay there, because selfishness, self-centeredness, that's the root of my troubles, then I start to experience the symptoms of my malady. I get restless, irritable, discontented, bored, depressed, anxious. A liar comes out of remission, starts working on an idea why we need power, and its hmm. solution is to smash cocaine, drink b- bourbon, and you know, smoke really good dope, right. then I'm really in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. When that liar comes out of remission, like you said there, that that's, that's trouble. Yeah. All right. So, so we've talked a little bit about that uh, resentments page. Yes. The, um, what other parts of the uh, step four well, inventory that, do we need so to So resentments, you know, you know, Bill, when he lists, you know, we'll take Mr. Brown as the example in the book. He lists Mr. Brown. It's a resentment. Why is he angry? You know, that's column two. Well, you know, his attention to his wife, told his wife about his mistress, and, and Brown may get his job at the office. Now, Bill, when he lists the inventory, how is he's affected, he just lists sex relations and self-esteem. But I posit there was much more going on there. Brown was certainly threatening his ambitions domestically and business-wise, his pocketbook domestically and business-wise, and his security both domestically and business-wise. So mm-hmm. I, I, in, when I use the example of five columns on Mr. Brown, I tease it out. Now, what's Bill's part? in Brown's resentment. Well, he's being dishonest. He's cheating on his wife. So infidelity and lust are now the character defect. False pride, selfishness, self-seeking. It's all about what Bill wants. Jealousy and suspicion kicks in. I'm sure he's jealous of Lois, you know, hanging with Brown and suspicious of what Brown's motives are. He's irresponsible because he's blaming Brown for his troubles. 
Mm. So he's, he's abdicated any kind of responsibility to his own thinking, feeling, behavioral approach to life. And there's fear. Now we can guess what the fear is. Maybe it's fear of not enough sex, fear of intimacy, fear of not, you know, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we can figure out what Bill needs to do instead. Love and forgiveness, humility and faithfulness, intimacy, humility, unselfishness, helpfulness, trust, be responsible, and have faith and courage. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that's an, an inventory item. So then we look at fears. Now, Bill doesn't really lay out a fear, but I use the same approach to fear. And I'll give an example because doing a fear inventory is really it can have a real great impact and insight. So one of the fears I used to suffer from was fear of rejection. Hmm. Okay? And a lot of addicts can relate to fear. I don't like to be rejected. I don't think anybody does. But right. some people it manifests into a real immobilizing fear. So why do I have this fear? Because it says, we look at our fears. Why did we have them? Even though we might not have resentment and connection with them, we look at why we got them and isn't it because self-reliance failed us? So we tease out our fears. I got fear of rejection. Why? Well, my parents were never there for me. My wife left me. It hurts when people reject me. People don't seem to like me. So how does that affect me? Well, it affects my self-esteem, affects my security, affects my ambitions, my pocketbook, my relationship, and I certainly don't get laid enough. Hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so what's my part in it? What's my best thinking as an individual in handling my fear? I get into false pride. I get into self-loathing. Oh, woe is me. I'm not good enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. And then I get into self-seeking motives. I want to be the center of attention. I need recognition. I get into being irresponsible to others by people-pleasing and martyring. I get dishonest with myself and others. I get very suspicious of everyone. And I have this fear. And then another fear pops out, the fear of being alone. Hmm. Now, when you look at that inventory, do you want to be friends with that person? <laughs> it, it would be a hard thing to be friends with that person. You think a woman wants to date a man like that nope. so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy it's an augury of what's going to happen it actually exacerbates the fear even more so so our our program what should we do instead gives us another approach to be humble unselfish helpful to others to be responsible and accountable to be honest to have trust to have faith and courage now is that a good person to have as a friend or an yep. employee or an employer or a relationship so it, it gives us a different trajectory to run on. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. So, so when I when I first came into the program, you know, I was <laughs> I thought I was better than all the people in the room. I thought, hey, I'm not as bad as that person, or not as bad as that person. And the fears thing, I've got no fears. I'm a man. I don't fear anything, you know. And it took it took some beat down to from my sponsor and from God and from my wife and from others to make me go, Oh, okay. I'm starting to see these things. Cause I can just, I'm sure like you, I can lie to myself with the best of them and convince myself that I have no fears, you know? And you know, sometimes, you know, this is why it takes two to see one. That's why this, when I do an inventory with someone, I do it with them. I don't cut them loose. And a lot of them, they don't want to face that stuff anyways. So it takes two people to see one because there's a lot of blind spots with the addict. So when I'm doing resentments, the reason I have a resentment is always there's an underlying fear driving it. And the fears are, are alluded to in that third column. Fears that are affecting my sex, my relationships, my ambitions, my security. There's a fear underlying that. And of course, my rebut to that fear is to get dishonest or angry or judgmental or whatever. So it's just a question of 
targeting it. It's like, I know I'm self-seeking. Most addicts I work with are self-seeking, but it's getting down to what's the self-seeking motive that's going unfulfilled and what's the underlying fear that's driving it. Hmm. And I'm yeah. able to really mine some good moral inventory with, with my uh, prospects working with them like that. Hmm. So, so we've talked a little bit about resentments, about fears. There's, there's harms situ- to others. Exactly. So, so tell, tell us about that. Now look, you know, harms to others. It, I use the same approach, a five column inventory approach, but it's counterintuitive. I start with the fourth column. So let's take Bill's example where he's done harm to his wife, Lois, right? Mm-hmm. He's cheating on her and she knows about it now, thanks to Brown. So what does Bill bring to his relationship? What are the moral defects Bill's bringing to his relationship? Well, he's bringing false pride. You know, he's arrogant. He's selfish and self-seeking motives. Lust, whenever sex is involved from a selfish standpoint, it's always lust. Mm-hmm. Lust is always about what I want. Uh, infidelity, he's cheating on her. Uh, dishonesty, uh, inconsideration. And let's just say for the sake of argument, he has a fear of no sex. Now, Bringing that to his relationship with, with Lois, then I turn column three, not about me or, or not about him, but how it affects Lois. Do you think bringing those character defects to the relationship affects Lois's self-esteem? Does it affect Lois's sex relationships, her security, her ambitions, and her pocketbook, right? Mm, yeah. And then we look at column two. By having the affair, he unjustifiably, and that's the key word, unjustifiably arouses jealousy, resentment, distrust, she feels inadequate. That's the nature of the harm done in a harm inventory. That's what we got to clean up. But more importantly, we directly correlate column four moral defects with harms to others. We see the direct connection. So what should Bill do instead? To be humble, to be intimate, to be faithful, to be honest, unselfish, to be helpful to others, to be considerate, to have faith and courage. Now, if he brings that to his relationship with Lois, is he going to affect Lois's self-esteem? Absolutely. In a very positive way. Her sex relations, her security, her ambitions, her pocketbook. And he's going to clean up what's going on in column two. So we directly correlate moral spiritual principles with not only reparations, but the, the way in which to navigate life in a far more effective way. Mm. And that's the value of inventories. So now we got a track to run on. And when I, you know, when I go into the step five, I don't need to know the nitty gritty details. I don't even need to know who you're talking about. You know who you're talking about. What I want to know is, do you understand your four and five column? Mm. Do you understand what your moral defects are? Do you understand what spiritual principles need to be embodied? And that, once you understand that, now we got a really powerful track to run on to move towards spiritual growth and progress, connection to God, reparations to others, a way to live without booze and drugs in our life. And we tap a different kind of power. And if you're a crack smoker, you know, tapping into the God dopes a ringer every time you tap it. And that's good stuff. Hmm. So let's go back to the resentment um, page there a little bit. Sometimes we have things happen in our lives where, where we just can't see our part in it. You know, maybe we were a victim, maybe we were, I don't know, molested or, or abused or whatever from something that we see no fault of our own in. Tell me a little bit about how we can deal with that resentment or if how we can deal with something that may come up in the future that's similar to that. So it doesn't have the same effect on us. 
That's a good question. It's really a step five answer because mm-hmm. step five, it says we go to the properly appointed authority who will understand yet be unaffected. So I started thinking about this notion of a properly appointed authority and uh, who should hear what parts of my story. So in this case, let's say I'm, I'm, I remember working with a man who had been molested as a five-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, you know, I really don't know what my part in this resentment is. I says, as a five-year-old boy, as an innocent, you play no part. There was a tremendous, heinous crime committed against you. And that kind of childhood trauma needs to be resolved with proper therapy. Mm. These people are skilled at teasing out these childhood memories and piecing you together so you emerge a much more psychologically stable and viable person. That's not what I do as a sponsor. However, as a sponsor, I will hear your moral inventory as a 47-year-old man who's used a 42-year-old incident to justify a life of victimization, self-deprecation, self-loathing, self-centered, self-seeking behavior. We'll talk about that from a 47-year-old male perspective. Hmm. But the childhood stuff I leave to the therapist, I deal with the moral stuff here and now with them as, as that 47-year-old individual. Hmm. No, that's really helpful to, to, to learn. Now, how does doing, going through that step while leaving the, the stuff to the therapist that is therapist material, how does going through this part of it allow and help the person who's, who's had this issue move past it so that they can, like you said, the 42 years, move on and not have that affect them in the future? A couple things should come out of that that relationship. One, they'll they'll seek the necessary psychological help they need, and two, they'll understand what their current dilemma is and what the answer to that dilemma is. Also, now sometimes the 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 psychological stuff is deep rooted, like in, with PTSD or other traumas, and they need to be resolved this way. They're, they're serious impediments. However, we 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 begin to start that journey by looking at here and now what are the defects that are coming into play that are that are interfering with your growth and happiness and what are the spiritual principles we're going to need to work on in order to achieve that sense of efficacy uh, from addiction to having a joyous and free life and if you embody these you can do that but sometimes there's an impediment to doing that and that's why we seek the properly appointed authority on on those types of issues right mm. So it's, you know, people are very complex. One thing I've learned about working with others is they're very complex. So, you know, criminal issues, I take to the lawyer. I remember working with a woman who was doing armed robberies. You want the details? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Especially when I'm working with people in organized crime. I don't want any details. Right, right. That's for their protection and my protection. You know, we're we're sponsors. We're, We're spiritual advisors. We hear the moral inventory. In a general way, too. I, like I said, I don't need to know the specific, but some sponsors love to hear that because some sponsors like to vicariously live through the sickness of their sponsees and hear all the nitty gritty, awful stuff. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be a garbage can for that kind of stuff. I don't need to hear that. Hmm. My job is to show them what the, the moral, spiritual tools are so that they can find a power greater than themselves. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think I think that what I'm some of the things I'm taking away, I'm taking a lot away a lot of things from you from this conversation, but one of them that I'm taking away just from this last little bit, I don't need to know specific details. You know those details. God knows the, those details. I don't need to know them. 
they've already written that stuff. You just want to focus on, you know, where am I at fault and what can I do instead? The blocks and the power. And sometimes they're stuck. They'll just have a name and I'll go, okay, so why are you angry at this person? Be specific and no backstory. I don't want to hear your backstory. I just want to hear they were condescending. They cheated on me. They robbed me. Specific answers like that. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know all the backstory and minutia, you know, why or what. Hmm. Do people approach you after that or during that and say, uh, you just don't care about me. I don't want to do this with you. Have you ever had anybody say something like that? As you say, I don't want the backstory. I don't care about that. Well, the only time they really get upset with me is when I say you probably, because they're being lazy or whatever. And I go, you know, you're, it sounds like you're not going to do the work and you'll probably die and I'll come to your funeral and I'll have free sandwiches. And then later I'm going to have sex with your wife and they get pretty upset with comments like, yeah, (laughs) not that I do that. My wife always smacks me for cracking off like that. But you know, (laughs) sometimes you got to poke the beast to, to, to make him do something. Right. I I don't play the care bear and I don't play the bully because I Mm. see, codependence is is really wrought within all the fellowships i think it's the overarching addiction Mm. where people think somehow if i love you till you love yourself that's going to have some kind of efficacy towards your addiction and i've not found that to be the case nor the other extreme where i bully you take cotton out of yours and put it in your mouth Mm -hmm. and shut up or i'll fire you and then will you be and this bullying approach to addiction doesn't work any better and and it's very codependent thinking somehow my love or my bullying is going to make you right that's not the way it works so i'm very neutral hmm. and i'm very and i'm very matter of fact in my bluntness of the illness and how i see it manifesting in them and i i don't do it to be mean i'm trying to wake them up hmm. because they're asleep most people are unconscious they're asleep like I say, they eat, they defecate, they fornicate, but and they never engage the prefrontal lobes and transcend to a much greater consciousness. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to wake them out up out of that slumber and move them forward. So tell me about your awakening from that slumber. I mean, I think you've touched on a little bit, but let's go into a little bit of detail about that. Well, sometimes people confuse the initial pink cloud with the divinity. And it's just usually the body saying, thank you so much for not poisoning me anymore. Mm. And that's great. And those are early experiences that one needs and should have. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been on a pink cloud for 16 years. I love my pink cloud. Mm-hmm. But I got to work for it every day. I can't rest on yesterday's laurels, right? Mm-hmm. And laurels means anything I did yesterday. You know, it's like, remember when the Jews were wandering in the desert and they had no food? Mm-hmm. How did they survive? You remember how they lived? The manna. The manna. The manna would rain down from heaven, the daily bread. But what was the one thing you couldn't do with the manna? You couldn't save it for later. <laughs> couldn't save it for the next day. You had to have faith that God would provide the next day. Well, it's the same thing with our program. Every day, in, in a Christian sense, my step three is my daily baptism with God. I make a decision to live for this 24-hour period. This is what it means by to live one day at a time. Not one day at a time, I'll white knuckle it through through not using. It's one day at a time that I will live my entire life according to God's will. And so I make that daily affirmation in the morning. I do my prayer, my meditation. I visualize my day and execute my day on what God's will will look like in my day and and attempt to do the best that I can possibly do. And that's powerful. That's a powerful way to live. And then at night, 
I use the step seven prayer to complete my day. So I awaken with consciousness at the beginning of my day, and I stay in an awakened consciousness throughout my day and the end of the day, and then I review my day. What went well? What, what character defects were kept in remission? What spiritual principles did I embody? What didn't go so well? And then I ask God to remove the defects and give me the strength to, to embody those, those spiritual principles for the next day. And I go to sleep in an awakened consciousness. Mm. That's power. Yeah. That, that sounds like kind of a, that it conflicts with each other. I go to sleep with an awakened consciousness. That is powerful. I love that. I'd like to ask you this question to, to, to define four terms for me. Um, and I'll just list off all four and then uh, I'll let you define them one at a time. Abstinence is the first one. Sobriety is the second one. Recovery, the third one, and healing, the fourth one. Oh wow! I sometimes they can be all synonymous and just different terms. You know, I call it sobriety. <laughs> okay. Where I'm just through sheer force of will, not drinking or using, but I have no idea how to live without it. Do you know the suicide rates in the rooms of 12 steps are 80 times higher than normal society? Eight zero. I had to read the stat twice. It was in the Oxford Handbook to Psychiatry that the suicide rates in the rooms of 12 steps are 80 times higher than normal society. And I got to pondering that statistic and realized so many people come to our program thinking the program is going to meetings. And they live their lives in sobriety, that proverbial dry drunk where they don't, they know they can't live with it anymore, but they don't know how to live without it. They dry out, they go crazy, and they end up taking their own lives. Mm. Out of the 32 people that I've worked with directly that, I, that have died, eight took their own lives. Seven wow. hung themselves and one jumped off a bridge to the viaduct uh, traffic mm. below. And because they were nuts, they were insane. They couldn't, they couldn't live without it. So. To me, abstinence without any program is a horrible way to work a program. It's miserable because mm -hmm. you have no power. You have no solution. You've got to remember, booze and drugs is my solution. It's not my problem. It was the solution to what ails me. Running out was a problem. But as the illness rolls out, it becomes more and more problematic and it eventually kills me. So I need a different solution. So abstinence in itself is not the solution. It's certainly part and parcel to what we need to do in order to move forward. But that in itself is not enough. It, it, it leads to a very miserable life. So sobriety, sobriety, you know, sobriety is such, um, I've been sober 16 years. You know, it is what it is, right? It's, 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 it's abstinent sobriety from alcohol and drugs for 16 years. Mm -hmm. Recovery or being recovered, which is what I prefer, as mm -hmm. a recovered alcoholic addict, I have been separated from that merciless desire to drink and use. That's no longer, like people say, just choose not to drink and use today. It's never a choice for me. I never had a choice when I was untreated. I don't have a choice now. I never think I'm going to have a drink. I have no desire to drink or use. Mm. There's no choice. I'm recovered. I've been separated. I'm, I'm tapped into a different kind of dope. In fact, the thought of polluting this temple with any kind of mind-altering substance is a repugnant idea to me. Mm recoil from it like a hot flame as it speaks in the step 10 promises right? right and that's recovery and that's and healing healing is is the um a lot of healing takes place in step nine i make reparations you know a lot of people say i'll, I'll be working step 
I was setting up the step nine instruction person. Well, I've forgiven myself. I don't need to make any amends. And I go, well, isn't that bloody convenient? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> I never forgave myself ever. But what I experienced before I was halfway through was a divine grace of forgiveness from God itself. And that alleviated a lot of guilt and remorse. Didn't excuse the, the heinous things that I did but it freed me from that awful guilt and remorse because I had done my utmost to set right those wrongs. Hmm. I like that. Recently I had an experience where a, a, a memory from uh, my past popped into my head, uninv- you know, uninvited. It's just one of those things that in the past brought me so much shame and just mm, wanted to beat myself up about it. But when it popped in this time, I was able to look at it for what it, is and realize yeah that happened it wasn't the best thing i could have done but i no longer feel that shame that guilt that weight it's not there anymore i can look at it and say yeah that was me it's not me anymore and that's a huge it's a miracle i mean as you alluded to earlier those things are miracles when they when they happen you know yeah and and if there's sometimes uh, you know speaking of step nine if i'm not sure how to make the amend I always ask the person, what do I need to do to make this right? And I get them to tell me how to make it. Now, a number of people have told me to drop dead, and I do hope to fulfill that amend at some point, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. So, how, Cameron, how do you work your 12th step today? Well, you know, we got to remember there's three legacies to our program there's the recovery legacy which are steps one to 12. Now, I pretty much work with the suffering alcoholic addict on a daily basis. I've done so for 16 years. I'm always working with someone. I was working with a 24-year-old young man earlier today in England via messenger Mm. who's an alcoholic cocaine addict and uh, just emerged from a coma and realizes Mm. he's dying and we started the work. So I do that on an ongoing basis. Then I embrace the second legacy, which is the unity of our, you know, the, our fellowship. And that is the, the, the principles of our traditions. And the traditions have kept me from committing homicide many times. Hmm. So I take the principles of recovery and the principles of our interpersonal relationships with the traditions and unity. And then through the third legacy, our service structure, I actualize those principles at the group the area, and the world level. And that is the icing on the cake. When I see those principles leveraged out and affect an entire group or affect an entire area or better yet, affect an entire world. You know, I'm currently the uh, the world archivist for Cocaine Anonymous out of LA. Huh. And the things that I've been able to do for the entire fellowship across the planet to engage in and be a part of, it's really an amazing thing to behold and to contribute. You know, people of high self-esteem are always giving. They're always in contribution. Like our step three promise, we're going to be less and less interested in our own little plans and designs, and we're going to see more and more how we can contribute to life. And every time I contribute, I'm giving my value to someone else who's readily receiving it and appreciating it. And that has a direct effect on, on bolstering my internal esteem hmm. as, a, as, a, as a human being. And it's, and it's rock solid these days. I know my value. Real humility is to know thyself. That's power. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. 
That's power. Yeah. So, so I want to dig there for just a minute. I mean, where you're at today, the opportunities you've been blessed with and given because of where you're at today, um, you have the ability to affect the world in, in a sense. Uh-huh. By God's grace. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go back a couple of decades and, and let's even go back to when you first came into the fellowship and first started going through that. Did you think that there would be any chance that that would ever be something that you would do in the future? No. Like, I, you know, more gets revealed all the time. And uh, I, at first I started, you know, once I had the epiphany around the big book, sponsorship approach. And I got like most big book thumpers. I got self-righteous and arrogant and went into rooms. You're killing people with this stuff. And, you know, I went through all that and it's not very helpful. I wrote an an article called Confessions of a Big Book uh, Sponsor. And I talk about all the different harms I did as a result of my self-righteousness. So I started there. And after I taken maybe two, 300 people through the steps, I've taken over 2000 people through the steps. Wow. I keep track of everyone I ever sit down with and carry the message to in, in a step program. I've been fired over a thousand times as a sponsor. And like mm-hmm. I said, 32 are dead, mm-hmm. but um, I, you hit spiritual walls. Once I had embraced and I understood how to sponsor people and, and I still get distinctions every time I go through it, I learn something new, some new insight, but I, I, I really, really worked it. So I hit a wall and I think now what? So then I started starting meetings. I wanted to start a meeting. And when I started a meeting, that meant getting involved with our area because I didn't want the area to be stepping on our toes because some areas get kind of wild and mandate and govern. Hmm. So I got involved in areas at GSR to, to make sure they, you know, they, they, they did their job and we did ours. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that got me involved into the service. And then I learned the traditions and I kept, and I'm, I'm hitting new walls now. I'm 62 years old and the fellowship is changing. We've got lots of young people and they really don't want me around now. I'm like the old man, you know, and mm. you know, I have a choice of either becoming a bleeding deacon or an elder statesman. So I've decided, you know, I started, I started another group. It's called the uh, CA service sponsorship group. And it's all about educating our fellowship on how to be good trusted servants so i'm teaching them about traditions and concepts and robert's rules and Mm. and you know how to be good speakers and making motions and everything that goes into the service element of our program Hmm. that's my next step wow sounds like a, a really cool opportunity that may lead to additional changing of areas and worlds and and everything else well, I didn't want to become a bleeding deacon where I'm hemorrhaging at the thought that area is going to go on without me and they'll obviously fail. You know, I just did not want to embody that kind of an individual. Right. So I, I got creative about it. So, you know, some people may think, hey, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to work the steps. I'm going to do these things so that I can become like Cameron and be some international speaker and influencer or whatever. What would you say to the person who has those types of aspirations up front? You know, I never set out to be, uh, I'm not really a circuit speaker. I've spoken all over the world, but I'm not popular like some of the big speakers. Must be things I'm saying. (laughs) Um, You know, God gave me a big mouth. I used to teach public speaking. So learning to craft a good talk 
came relatively easy to me and and people seem to appreciate the talks that i that i give um but i never set out to be that kind of a person i just had a huge desire to be helpful to the person who suffers and i'm always looking for ways to do that now if i do that through one-on-one sponsorship fine if i can do that by doing a podcast with you and it reaches somebody and inspires them to work their steps and get involved with their fellowship that's great i started teaching tradition workshops and getting involved in the fellowship and conventions and that sort of stuff and it, like it, this is this is my life over a, a 16 year span of involvement you know it didn't all happen at once it kind of organically grew Mm -hmm. as god revealed to me different areas of my life that i could improve upon and be helpful with yeah do you think you could have uh had those things revealed to you if you uh didn't have your own to use some some recovery phrases here your own side of the street cleaned or your own bedroom cleaned up no i'll give you an example i had a bit of an altercation with my daughter a year ago my daughter's 33 stepdaughter and and i love her but she's like you know a lot of young people and we don't see eye to eye politically or generationally and we got into a fight and i and you know i'm a 62 year old man what am i fighting with a 33 year old girl in the first place and i said some awful things Hmm. And so she hasn't talked to me in over a year. I tried to, mm. I reached out early on with my reparations. My brother is in the program says, you know, Cameron, if you're going to eat crow, you better eat it while it's fresh. Cause it tastes awful. The longer you let it sit. <laughs> um, but um, she, she ignored the first attempt. Wasn't ready, whatever I tried, but it, it bothered my wife. She wouldn't come to our home anymore. And, and, and it bothered her this riff. So, and it bothered me because I can't, with all integrity say, you know, like I try to do the best I can. What more can I do to make this matter right with her? So I reached out again recently and, and, and again was very contrite and said, you know, I, I regret the rift and, and I, I, I would love to see you for Christmas Eve. I know your mother wants to have you here. I would like to have you here. I, I promise you to be respectful and, and courteous. And, and she said, yes. Hmm. So, you know, that that's progress. I can't do my program in all consciousness if I've got unfinished, messy business out there. And I'm always working on. There's always some element in my life that can be improved. Yeah. And that's what I find about higher consciousness. You know, it it, it keeps coming up until I deal with it. And if I try to ignore it, stuff it down, that's never any good either because it pops out in some like a whack-a-mole game. It always pops up in a weird way, right? Right. Right. Good. Well, Cameron, before we close up, is there anything else that you feel is um, important to get out there to the potential listeners who may be in denial, may be active um, addicts, may be our spouses or family members of somebody who's really, really struggling? What words of hope or advice do you have for them? Well, the bad news is we're without defense. If we're real addicts, that is, we want to stop, but we can't stop. And when we do consume, we can't predict how that's going to look. If you're one of if you're one of those like I am, and nothing human or secular works, the bad news is I'm without defense. I will drink and use again, and for me to drink and use again is to die. That's the bad news. The good news is there is a way out. There is a solution. 
We found a solution that's duplicatable and has the efficacy to separate us from addictive behaviors and to be and to live a joyous and free and productive and happy life. And it, it, it's laid out very eloquently and very simply in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, although I'm always amazed at how complicated people can make it. Mm. When I sponsor others, I take five days. I do it in five days. If lack of powers are a dilemma, do you want to wait for the God dope or do you want your dope now? I don't know about you. I drank and smashed cocaine because I wanted my buzz now. So when it comes to the God dope, I want it now. Mm. Now, the good news is you can have it now. But a lot of people will argue, oh, you didn't get sick overnight. You're not going to get well overnight. And I always retort with, well, if you're going to argue for your limitations, congratulations, you get to keep them, right? Mm. I've seen people have profound alterations in their life if they can approach the recipe with an honest, open, and willing mindset, work the program without any half measures. I worked my program like a dope run. I, I used and drank for 26 years, morning, noon, and night. So when it comes to the program, I work it like a dope run. I work it morning, noon, and night, integrate it in all aspects of my life. Hmm. And if you're willing to do that and have faith that power is there based on the testimony of others, being the, the ability to think honestly and to search diligently within yourself, you too can join us on this amazing broad highway. Hmm. And we could sure use the help, folks, because business is booming and I'm very tired. Hmm. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Cameron. I really appreciate your time in doing this. All right, Justin. Thank you so much. So there you have it. That was Cameron in step four. Thank you so much, Cameron. That was a great um, experience for me and something that will help me and I believe others for many, many years to come. Now, if you as the listener have felt something in your heart or mind that is motivating you to act on it, whether that be to share this episode or this entire series of the Journey Through Life podcast with a loved one, or to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, please, I ask of you, act on it, and it will make all the difference in your life. Now for the housekeeping part of this program. Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at, at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Check us out online at www.jtlpod.com. Please go visit our sponsors. They are what help us continue doing what we do. And I purposely have not put them at the beginning of these episodes during this week's, this 12-week series. And I do that because I feel that this topic is too important to sully with those things at the beginning of it. I want to kick off these episodes with some thoughtful um, things to share. So anyways, please go check out our sponsors. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. Use promo code JUSTIN at alifeuntold to save 10% on your order, and JTLPOD5 at both Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save 5% on your orders there. Now, these conversations that I've recorded in this Journey in Recovery series have been life-changing for me, as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning. And I am definitely becoming a different, and I think, a better person for it. Now, I invite you to do the same. See if you become a different and better person from applying the things that jump into your heart and mind as you listen. Now, have a good week, and press forward 
one day at a time. Mm-hmm.